focused on Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the story of Jacob's ladder. Okay. How about stairway to heaven? <laughs> In order for Jacob's ladder to make sense to us, we need the backstory. We need Genesis 25, 26, 27. Now you know why first service ended a little late. So I think I can do this a little more efficiently, second service. So we do need to look at Genesis 25, 26, 27. I'm going to give you the highlights. What God does for us in these stories is He really focuses on the patriarchal family and just family dynamics. And it's amazing to read that their family's not much different than any other family. There's sibling rivalry. There's, I can't please my parents. You've got mom and dad's parenting not on the same page. You've got parents disappointed in the, in the bride that a kid chooses. All kinds of things going on. I can't believe the world reads the Bible and says this is irrelevant. This is the world. Not much has changed. Nothing new under the sun. And so God will be making an appearance a little bit at a time. But the point is is to read this family and realize what happens when people take their focus off God and what He's doing. And then when we get to Jacob's ladder, God comes back into sharp focus. So let's start in Genesis 25, and we'll hit some of the highlights. Abraham has gone home to be with the Lord. He's buried next to his wife, Sarah. Remember, Abraham had bought a piece of land to bury his wife, so Abraham is buried there. So now Isaac is the head of the clan. He is the patriarch in charge. And He's waiting for a child of promise because God has made these promises to Abraham and then they got passed to Isaac, so they're expecting now that they'll have a son as well to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the covenant is what? I'll make you a great nation through your seed. You'll get this land, a mighty nation, and I will bless all the families of the earth through you And those who bless your name, I will bless. And those who curse your name, I will curse. This is the Abrahamic covenant. So our story starts off with Rebecca, who we saw last week. Remember, Abraham's servant, Eliezer, went all the way back to Abraham's hometown and chose a wife for Isaac. And Rebecca was this beautiful hard-working servant of a woman. And we saw the beautiful love story, and he brings her back, and Isaac marries her, and he loves her. And we saw that that was actually ultimately a picture of the groom, Jesus Christ, and us, the bride, the church, and how he loves us. And that Eliezer was a picture of the Holy Spirit who chooses the bride. He, he regenerates our hearts and we become saved and we become part 
of the family of God. So as we read these stories, we realize these are real people, real stories, real history, but they point us to something even bigger. So Rebecca is having trouble conceiving. Sounds familiar? Same thing happened to Sarah. And Isaac cries out to the Lord, and the Lord opens Rebecca's womb, and she is pregnant with twins. She's pregnant with twins. And she feels them jostling around inside her all the time. And she prays to the Lord, if everything is is going well, why all this turmoil? You know, what is going on? And the Lord reveals to her that in her womb is two boys, and they represent two nations that will always kind of be in conflict. And the older son will serve the younger eventually, which is contrary to tradition. Traditionally, in this culture, the oldest son, the firstborn, is going to be the next patriarch of the family, and he gets this birthright. In the birthright, when the father dies, the oldest son gets a double portion. Hardly seems fair, right? Just because you're born first, you get a double portion, but that's the way things went, and you became the patriarch of the family. And you have to understand, family was not just your nuclear family, but the whole clan. Your family was almost a small nation unto itself, and this is how you kept your land safe, and you kept your herds and your flock safe, is you tried to have a lot of sons, and that was kind of your army. That was how you protected your family wealth. So if you're the firstborn son, you become the patriarch, really the kind of the, the king, the lord of this dynasty. So it's a big deal being the firstborn. Kind of sad if you're born twins and your older brother is like 10 seconds older than you. Because we read that literally as Esau was coming out of the womb, Jacob was holding on to his heel. You know, wait for me. I want to be first. I don't know what's going on there. But just by God's providence, Esau is the older. But we get to hear that God in his sovereignty has already decided that Jacob is going to be the child of blessing and reveals that to his mother. So that sets the scene. Here's some other things we hear. Esau comes out hairy. In fact, Esau means hairy. Not H-A-R-R-Y, H-A-I-R-Y. I'm always thinking when I read through the Bible, just because that's what somebody looks like or is characterized by, why would you name your kid that? I mean, people are going to see. You don't have to name him Harry. But that's his name. He's kind of burly. He's a hunter. He's an outdoorsman. You got the picture in your head, right? He's Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. He's, he's the stereotypical kind of, uh, what was that home improvement show? Remember, arr, 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 you know. And Jacob is um, smooth-skinned. 
and he's mild, and it says he's content with living in the tents. Well, who lives in the tents all day? The ladies, the women, right? So he's kind of hanging on to the apron strings, and he's more domesticated, and he's got gifting in areas of administration and cooking. He's probably got better people skills, too. He's more relational. He's hanging out with the ladies, talking all day. His older brother's out in the field where you're lucky to get a grunt every once in a while. So we have these polar opposite brothers. And then the, the text tells us Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Oh boy. This is a recipe for disaster. And before we move on, I want to kind of plant this question in your mind. Why do we do this? Why would parents do this to their children? Why would Isaac love Esau better? I mean, they're twins. They're born at the same time. And we understand that we have these preferences we don't understand, we relate to, and certain people resonate with us. Why do we choose the friends we choose? Why do we choose the spouse we choose? What goes into that whole process? We like sometimes watching uh, some of those home shows like House Hunters and listening to the husband and wife kind of fight over the house. Well, I want this kind of, uh, you know, that, I want carpet. I want hardwood. Uh, I said, Why? It's just flooring. You know, and it's like, I don't know because that's pleasing to the eye and I want to feel comfortable in my house. And so we understand we have these preferences, but it, we would also understand it is wrong for a parent to love one child more than the other. Maybe Isaac attempted, or maybe he didn't, to spread the love around. But we get the impression that it was obvious to all that Esau was preferred by his father. He's the firstborn, and he's the strapping, hairy, outdoorsman, hunter. We do hear this from the Bible, that Isaac really loved the wild game that Esau would bring home. He loved eating that. And boy, are those simple pleasures in life very powerful. You can associate that good, hearty food with this sun. And it just feeds on itself. And he may not have even known that he was preferring this sun over the other. But I'll tell you who did know he was preferring that sun over the other. Jacob. And Esau probably had a pretty good idea, too, who was the favorite son. Why do people do this? Why are their teachers pets? Why does the coach have the favorite on the team? This is human nature. And yet, when we look back to Genesis 4 at the two brothers who were very different, Cain and Abel, one a what? Farmer and one a herdsman. Both brought their sacrifice to God who played no favorites. 
He accepted one sacrifice because it was given according to God's stipulations, and the other wouldn't bring his sacrifice according to God's stipulations. And he became upset that God rejected his sacrifice. This wasn't God saying, I really like this kid better than that one. I don't know why, but I just do. Get over it. It's not how God is. And he says, Cain, why has your face fallen? Why has your countenance fallen? Do you not know that if you bring the acceptable sacrifice, I will accept you? But sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. And if you do not master it, it'll master you. And indeed, that is what happened. He became so envious and so jealous of his brother that he decided to murder him. And oh boy, is history going to repeat itself as we keep reading. Now one day, Esau comes in from hunting, and I gather that he's the bronze and Jacob's the brain in the family. He comes in famished one day, and he says, I am famished, you know, all my kingdom for a bowl of stew. That kind of attitude. And Jacob says, I'll give you a bowl of stew, but you have to give me your birthright. It's a ridiculous offer. A bowl of stew for I get a double portion when dad dies and I get to be the patriarch of the family. I don't know if Esau took it seriously, what was going on with him, but he agrees to it. And so his nickname becomes Edom, which is red, because the bowl of stew was red. And so maybe that became a nickname he was given to remind him of the foolish thing that he had done. Later, then, he becomes the father of the Edomite nation. When you hear that in the Old Testament, Edom, you know where that comes from now. That, that is Esau. So Jacob's name means supplanter. It literally has the word heel in its root. To grab at the heel means to try to pull someone out of the way and take their place. Some would say his name means deceiver, and yes, he he deceives a lot, and we're going to see his deception. But technically, that word in the Hebrew uh, doesn't mean deceiver. But you could see where supplanting someone would involve deception. In chapter 26, a famine hits the land, just like in Abraham's time, and Isaac has to travel to Egypt to find food. Apparently, that's where you go in Bible times when there's a famine. Everyone heads down to Egypt, I would imagine, because the Nile always overflows its banks and waters the ground. That is where food is going to be growing, even during times of drought. So like his father, he starts to travel to Egypt, and God tells him, do not go all the way to Egypt, but stay in Gerar, which is in the promised land. And he reiterates the covenant promises to Isaac. So the same things I promised to your father Abraham, I am promising to you. I will promise you all four of those things, and I will watch over you while you're sojourning in this land amongst hostile people. 
So you don't need to go all the way down to Egypt. I will take care of you. There will be enough food. You will be blessed. And I will protect you. Like his father, Isaac decides he needs to take matters into his own hands. And he tells the people of the land, King Abimelech, different Abimelech than Abraham, but what they would do back then is whoever became king took on that name, just like Herod in the New Testament. So different King Abimelech, but same area. We get deja vu here. We get the apple not falling far from the tree. Isaac lies to the people of the land and says, my wife is really my sister. Can you believe it? It's the same thing his dad did. Did his dad ever tell him the story? I don't know. We don't, we don't know in the Bible. You'd think he would tell his son that story. And look, it was completely unnecessary. I shouldn't have lied. God is my protector. So he lies to the people and he says, this is, this is my sister. She's so pretty and he's just convinced they're going to kill me and steal my wife. These pagan people know enough to know it's wrong to steal another man's wife. But if you murder him, now she's single. So talk about your warped values. Well, we get this scene and it's almost... I, I find it a little bit amusing the way the Bible presents it. Abimelech sees through a window in the tent... Isaac being amorous with his wife. And he puts two and two together and realizes that's not his sister. And he goes and talks to him and says, Behold, certainly she's your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Now think about what he's saying to these people. I lied to you, and when they confront him on his lie, he says, it's because I figured you guys would kill me to steal my wife. Have you ever sinned against someone, and when they confronted you, you said, I'm sorry, but I had to because you're such and such a way, so it's not really the apology that I did something wrong. It's, well... You know, I'm sorry, but I had to because... And you walk away and you say, yeah, that's right, you're sorry. And two steps later, you're like, hey, wait a minute. He didn't really apologize. In fact, he added insult to injury. Now, God is faithful. He's promised he would protect him. God's not going to renege on his promises because Isaac sinned. In fact, the opposite happens. Abimelech says, if one of us had relations with your wife, we would have brought dishonor and a curse on us. So Abimelech tells all of his people, anybody touches this man or his wife is a dead man. Wow. Now he has instant protection in the land. Nobody's going to lay a hand on him now. So as a side note, keep that in mind, that God, in His sovereignty and in His faithfulness, even works through 
our unfaithfulness, disobedience, and sin. That is not to say, go on ahead and sin, because God will just use it for good. That's dishonoring to God and trampling on the blood of Jesus. That's the easy beliefism, cheap grace. Well, God's going to forgive me anyway, so I might as well go ahead and do what I want to do. What it should do is humble you to say, wow, God will even work through our sin. Yeah, he he gets all the glory because of that. I know it's humbling to think that at our best, we kind of get in God's way. (laughs) We're we're the guy on the, uh, the team that you'd rather just not have on the team. You know, when you're choosing sides at P.E. and you get down to the last two or three kids and they're like, why don't you just take the last three? We'll be good. Oh, no. You're, you, I feel sorry for those kids. But, you know, if, if, the, if the Cavaliers pull off this NBA Finals, LeBron James is going to be exalted to, like, one of the top one or two, three basketball players in history. Because if he can win this thing with no supporting cast, I mean... Yeah, they can play basketball, but come on, everyone's admitting these, these supporting players are not that good. It's amazing what God pulls off in and through us. It'd be easier if he just pushed us aside and just went and did what he was going to do. That somehow he, he works through our choices and our desires and our will, even our fallenness, our grand plans, our cleverness, and he works it all out. And we can't thwart his plans. It should give you amazing confidence in the Lord. You don't have to be paralyzed in fear. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Trust in the Lord. Follow him. Don't commit sin. Put your best foot forward. He's going to work it all out. He will. This is the kind of God that he is. Now, the other people in the land, even though they've been told don't touch him, are still jealous of Isaac. And God begins to multiply Isaac's herd. And everybody else's herd isn't really multiplying. So they start stopping up his wells. But eventually they figure out God is blessing this guy in spite of our best efforts to get in his way. Maybe we should get on his good side because his God is powerful. And they decide to make a covenant with him and say, hey, do whatever you want in the land. We are your friend. We will bless you. You don't have to fear us anymore. So there's God making good on the Abrahamic covenant. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. So here they are living in this foreign land, but it is the land God has promised them eventually. And now the people in the land are blessing Isaac and his family in the middle of a famine. At the end of chapter 26, we get this interesting little tidbit. Esau marries two Hittite women, two pagan women. Even though he knows the story 
I'm sure of how his dad got his bride, Esau's mother, Rebekah, that Abraham did not want his son Isaac marrying a pagan Canaanite woman and sent his servant Eliezer all the way back to his homeland to go get a bride. Esau runs out and not only marries a Canaanite, but he doubles down and marries two of them. Right? Because what could be better than one? Two, right? Yeah. Not a smart man. And it says it brings grief to his parents. They're upset. You know, this, this old ancient Bible, just it's just not relevant today because kids don't go out and marry people that disappoint their parents. I mean, that just doesn't, doesn't happen anymore, right? Oh, no, this is completely relevant. Come on, world. This is us. This is human nature. Remember they would tell you in history class, those that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat? It, yeah. So Esau marries two Hittite women, which brings grief to his parents. Now we move into chapter 27, and this is where the story gets very soap opera Jerry Springer-ish. I mean, you're like, this is in the Bible? Whoa. Yeah, wait till you get to Judges. Jeez. But... So Isaac's old and blind now, and he knows death is near any day now, so he better give the blessing to his oldest son. In his mind, the Abrahamic covenant is going to go to Esau because he's the oldest. I don't know if Rebecca ever talked to him about her dream, and if she did, if, if he just ignored her or, or what. God doesn't give us those details. But in Rebekah's mind, this blessing is supposed to go to Jacob, my favorite. And in Esau's, uh, Isaac's mind, the blessing is going to go to Esau, my favorite. And, of course, Isaac has the authority to give that blessing, not Rebekah. So he tells Esau, go out and catch some of that game I like. Make me some of that, that savory food I like, and I will pass the blessing on to you. So Esau goes out. To the field. In the meantime, Rebecca overhears what her husband has said, gets her son Jacob, and they devise this plan to trick his father, her husband, and steal the blessing. It's, it's almost unbelievable. This is the patriarchal family that God is redeeming humanity through and creating a nation that is supposed to be a light to the world to say, this is the way God originally intended humanity to operate. And yet, because they still have sin natures, this is what we get. So last week, we see Rebecca's this amazing young woman who waters these camels all afternoon in the desert heat. And now as a mother, she's conspiring with her son, to lie to her husband and steal this blessing. She's probably justifying it in her mind because, hey, wait, the, God said the blessing's going to go to Jacob. Now, who did we hear had to manipulate things in order to make good on God's promises, right? I don't have a son yet, Sarah said to Abraham, so I'll give you my servant Hagar. And we can justify these terrible decisions that we make in our minds. 
The mind is a wonderfully terrible thing. We can accomplish so much good and so much innovation to the glory of God and then turn around and embarrass ourselves and dishonor God. Sometimes in the same breath. This is the heart of man. That's why Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked, right? Who can understand it? That's why Paul says in Romans 7, I do the things that I don't want to do and the things I do want to do, I can't seem to do them. Oh, wretched man that I am. What is going on inside me? We have this battle inside of us. So Jacob lies to his father. But he's a smart enough young man to know my dad's maybe blind, but he's no idiot. He's going to know I'm not Esau. So his mom says, go out and get two baby goats, two kids. We'll kill them. We'll make the stew your dad likes. And then you can use the skins from the goats to put on your arms and the back of your neck and then put on one of your brother's cloaks so you smell like him. And we can trick your father that way. I mean, this the deceit is so well planned out. This is first-degree deceit, right? This is premeditated deceit. And so Jacob enters his father's tent, and his father says, Who is it? And he says, It's your son. And he says, Which one? It's Esau. Well, it sounds like Jacob. And he says... If it's Esau, how did you get back so soon? I just sent you out. And, you know, I've got, I smell the bowl of stew. And Jacob says, the Lord God Almighty brought the food to me. Now he's invoking the name of God to lie to his own father. This is the patriarch. Jacob's name is going to become Israel. He's the father of of the nation Israel makes you wonder, why doesn't God just get rid of this guy and find somebody else? Well, you and I need to look in the mirror and ask the same question. That's what it's intended to do, humble us. If God can work through through this, then it's amazing that He would choose to work through any of us. So, Isaac feels the the fur and kind of smell and he says well the voice is Jacob but it sure feels like Esau and he eats the stew and he's happy and he gives the blessing to Jacob and once you give the blessing you can't take it back it's a done deal you've made a covenant you've sealed the covenant the story is so well written it's it's like It's a captivating movie. It's like a great novel. The Bible literally says that just as Jacob was leaving the tent, in comes Esau from the field. They just missed each other by a few seconds. Because if if they hadn't, he would have been like, why are you wearing goat skins and my cloak? (laughs) But they just missed each other, and in comes Esau, Father, it's me. And Father says, who? Which son? Esau, you told me to go get game. And he's like, but you were just here with the game. Oh, no. And Isaac figures out right away what just happened. I just gave your blessing to your brother. 
And there's this powerful scene where Esau breaks down in tears and cries out, Father, don't you have a blessing for me too? I gave everything I have to Jacob. Talk about reversal of fortune. The favored brother his whole life assuming I'll always be the favored one. And now he's left with nothing. And he says, Jacob, aren't you aptly named? This is twice now you have tricked me out of my inheritance. And he cries again, Father, please, I need a blessing. We understand this. I mean, you go in for counseling and you're a man and you don't ever feel like your father appreciated you. That's the first thing the counselor asks. Tell me about your father. Do you have a wound there from your father? Did your father love you? He never loved me. This book in my office uh, by a guy who was coming around the church a few years ago, Ken Ventura, and he wrote this book, Man Versus Boy, and kind of chronicled when you see a man who makes it into manhood and all these characteristics and a man who's struggling to make it into manhood and those characteristics. And there's a story there in the book where a young man who was struggling to emerge into adulthood remembered that when he was 12 years old, he decided to impress his family and impress his father by making breakfast for the family and he made pancakes And the father came out, and he's eating his pancakes, and he said, Dad, what do you think of the pancakes? And he wanted the father's blessing, and the father said, you're going to make a great wife someday. You know? And the the guy said, I just carried that with me my whole life. And so much of the dysfunction in his life was trying to get other men to appreciate him. What does the Bible call that? Fear of... Man, instead of fear of God, everything you're doing is trying to get approval from other people. That's, that's why there's gangs. I need approval. I need to feel like I belong. We understand these things on some level. And yet we know as Christians you can't blame all of your bad choices on those things. So what do we do with that? I'm going to help you with that in a minute. Now, let me, let me finish this story for you. Esau begs his father for a blessing, but, but he doesn't have one to give him. But he does tell him, um, you're not going to have this blessing, but here's what's going to happen to you. You will live away from the fertility of the earth, and away from the dew of heaven from above. So things aren't going to come easy for you. You will live by the sword. And your brother you will have to serve. But it shall come about that you will become restless and you will break his yoke from your neck. So there's going to be strife between these brothers. Kind of reminds me of Ishmael. Kind of a wild man. And though you're going to be the prince of 12 tribes, and you are going to have a great nation, you're going to be a warlike man. So it says Esau bore a grudge against Jacob, you think? 
because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. So my father's going to die soon, and when I'm done mourning him, I am going to kill my brother Jacob. I'm not going to do it while dad's alive, but when dad dies, I am going to go kill Jacob. He says it out loud, and a servant goes to tell Rebekah. Rebekah tells Jacob, your brother Esau is planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise and flee. Now, obey your voice. Last time I obeyed your voice, look what happened. That harkens us all the way back to Genesis 3. When man and woman falls and God says to Adam, because you obeyed the voice of the woman, I will curse the ground because of this. So we see these patterns replaying over and over again through redemptive history. And you may ask yourself, well, when are things going to get better? Where's the redemption? And just when we start to see these characters do some some good things, we see these disastrous things. And what it ought to do is keep us yearning for Christ the perfect man. Somebody's got to come along and do this for us because we can't seem to figure out life on our own. And the perfect man does come and, and we, we, uh, we see God saying from heaven, this is my beloved Son, right? In whom I am well-pleased before Jesus went to the cross. It wasn't predicated upon Jesus being or acting a certain way. This is my beloved Son, who I am well-pleased. He says it at his baptism, and he says it at the transfiguration. He doesn't say it after Jesus performs some miracle or Jesus uh, goes to the cross. This is the way we're to love our children because they're our children and they're a gift. And you have to fight against this urge to want your kids to be a certain way or be more like you or be less like you. Our children are born with a sin nature. Their sin will disappoint us, but they as people should never disappoint us. Do you get the difference? Of course their sin disappoints me. My sin disappoints me. When my children sin, I'm disappointed for them because they've sinned against a holy God. But our disappointment should never become personal. Your children should know they're unconditionally loved by you. Now, Rebecca's not done lying and manipulating her husband. She knows she's in danger of losing Jacob. If Esau kills Jacob after Isaac dies, then the other men of the family will have to track down Esau and avenge Jacob's death. And then she'll have lost both her sons and her husband. So she goes to Isaac and she says, hey, you know what would be terrible? If Isaac married a Hittite woman, I'm sorry, if Jacob married a Hittite woman like Esau, Maybe we ought to send him away to my father's house so he could choose 
a bride. And Isaac goes along with the idea. Now think about this. When Abraham wanted to get a bride for Isaac, he sent a servant to go get the bride because he did not want his son leaving the promised land. Afraid that he would not come back and trusting that God will pick the right bride for him. But Isaac's not thinking straight, and Rebecca says, look, we need to send our son to go find a bride. Isaac says, oh, good idea. And that's how Rebecca gets Isaac to send Jacob away from harm's way. And so he leaves, and before he leaves, his father reiterates the blessing. Even though he knows his son tricked him, now that he knows it is Jacob, he tells Jacob, here's the blessing God has chosen you, and he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant to his son and sends him away. And the family seems pleased with the idea that he's going to get himself a wife from the family. Now, interestingly, Esau sees this, and he decides, hey, if I get myself a non-Canaanite wife, maybe... Mom and dad will be happy with me. And so he goes out to his uncle Ishmael and asks for a bride, and he marries one of Ishmael's daughters. So now he has three brides. And he's just compounding bad decision on top of bad decision because he desperately wants his parents' blessing. It's well chronicled the lengths children will go to to know that their parents are proud of them and love them and appreciate them. Be careful, Mom and Dad. You have God-given amazing influence over your children. Use it for good. So now we get to Jacob's ladder. While he's traveling, he lays his head down to sleep on a rock. I don't know why. And he dreams of a ladder or a stairway going from heaven to earth and angels ascending and descending on this ladder. So I'm going to read that part of Scripture to you. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There was not a lady there buying it, just to set the record Straight. You know, like two chuckles. The the rock and rollers got the joke. Um, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Isn't that interesting that he says, the God of Abraham, your father. It's really his, his grandfather, right? That he's saying, look, your lineage goes all the way back to Abraham, the man that I originally chose and made my covenant with. 
The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And all this after these horrible things that Jacob has done. Because God is faithful and he made this covenant with his father Abraham. And when God makes a promise and makes a covenant, regardless of our obedience or disobedience, he is faithful to keep it. Aren't you glad for the new covenant in Christ? That our salvation is based on faith, not on our performance. You don't have to wake up each morning wondering, is God happy with me today or not happy? Do I have to manipulate the circumstances in my life to get the things God has promised, or is God just going to deliver on the things that he promised? Jacob's life has been a mess because God has been out of the equation. If God said, you're going to get the blessing... He should have been assured, I'm going to get the blessing and not have to concoct this plan to lie and manipulate to his father into giving him the blessing. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Dude, he's been in this place with you your whole life. And yet we see this in the lives of people. This is my life. My parents have faith. And they tried to pass it on to me best they could. But one day in my 20s, God made himself known to me in a way that I said, wow, there really is a God. And he loves me. Yeah, that's what we've been telling you your whole life. And some of you are waiting for your children to have that moment, and don't stop waiting patiently. God's timing is God's timing. Yes, it's frustrating while you're waiting for it to happen. This dream changed everything in Jacob's life. Wow, this God is in this place, and I did not know it. Just because he didn't know it doesn't mean it wasn't true. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, poured oil on the top of it. He made an altar. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is not to say he's putting God to the test. If you do all these things, then you can be my God. He's saying, really, the word there could be since. Since you're doing all these things and have done all these things, then the Lord shall be my God. That's the kind of God I want. I believe this is where Jacob placed his faith in God. For Abraham, it was when God said, go, and he went. 
And his faith was ultimately put to the test, Abraham, when God said, offer up your son Isaac on the mountain. For Jacob, this is one of those pivotal moments in life where, wow, God's given him eyes to see. So I titled the sermon, Nature versus Nurture and the Sovereignty of God. And we spent all this time looking at nature and nurture. You remember nature versus nurture in your science classes, psychology, sociology. Nature is what we're all created with. Our DNA, right? We have certain traits, talents, characteristics, preferences, proclivities, which means you just lean towards certain things. So certain desires, and some of those desires are sinful. Nurture is the environment in which we are raised. These environmental factors, experiences, teachings, all these things that kind of inform and influence the way we think and act. And scientists are saying, well, is it nature or is it nurture? Bruce Jenner wants to be a woman. Is he born with that proclivity or was he influenced in such a way that he leaned that way? Yes and yes. But does he have to give in to that part of his nature and nurture? No. And when he didn't, he was an Olympic decathlon champion. He's led a very blessed life. Now, the world doesn't bring the sovereignty of God in play, so what is the world saying? Be whoever you want to be. Be yourself. Stop fighting against your nature. Stop fighting against your nurture. And on one side of their mouth, they're saying it's not people's fault, and on the other side of their mouth, they're saying, well, it is. So which is it? You see, the feminist movement is angry with Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner. Because out of one side of their mouth, they're saying, good for you, be who you want to be. But now they're mad at him for saying, I feel like a woman, and this is what womanhood looks like. This grotesque picture on the front of Vanity Fair of makeup and hair and augmentations. And the feminist movement said, we've been fighting against that view of womanhood for 60 years, and now this guy... Oh, wait, I thought you said he could be a girl if he wanted to be a girl. Well, when we're mad at him, we want him to be a guy because he doesn't have the right plumbing. Oh, so now biology does determine... See, it's a big, messed-up, paradoxical, conflicting view when the world takes God out of the equation. Bring God into the equation. Why is Bruce Jenner the way he is? Man's fallenness tainted his nature. Yes, I'm sure his whole life he struggled with secretly kind of leaning more towards womanhood. But he's a man, and he was created to be a man, and really physically an amazing man. Great gifts and talents. And he grew up in a time when our culture was nurturing, you're a man, be a man. And now we live in a different culture that is now nurturing, whatever you feel like being today, be that. 
And so, has nature affected him? Yes. Has nurture affected him? Yes. But what does God expect? God expects us to obey Him and trust Him. If I have these proclivities, but God says this is wrong, then I must practice self-control against those proclivities, those leanings. So the scientists are now saying it's not nature or nurture, it's nature and nurture. It's some weird dance of both in our lives. And they can't really sort out which is which. And because they just kind of want to throw up their hands, it's everybody do whatever it is that you want to do. But our society can't function like that. You understand this. It's absurdity. What else happened this week in the news? The president of the NAACP in Washington turned out she's actually white, but she's been telling everyone she's African American. And her parents came out and said she's not black. She's taking some kind of chemical to turn her skin color, but she's she's white as white could be. And so she said, finally admitted, yes, that's true, but she said, on my inside, I believe that I'm African American. Well, how insulting to actual African Americans. Because in her rhetoric and in her speeches, she'll say things like, my people have been persecuted for hundreds of years. She grew up in white suburbia, Seattle. Great life, no persecution. And the world doesn't know what to do about this now because the... the, uh, the the race people are like, what do we do with her? We've been saying, let people be who they want to be, but you can't be one of us if you're not one of us. Folks, we're living in these times of great confusion and absurdity. What does God expect then? God is sovereign over our nature and nurture, but never in such a way that He is responsible for our sin. Do you understand that? God made us the way we are. He put us in the family that we're in for a reason and for a purpose, and we need to trust in that. And don't expect people to change in ways that God isn't expecting them to change, but by God's grace, we can help one another change in the areas where God expects change. Well, how do you know which areas we're supposed to change and which areas we're not supposed to change? God's Word. God's Word. Don't expect Jacob to suddenly turn into a hairy hunter. And don't expect Esau to turn into a more domesticated people-person administrator. God made him that way for a purpose and for a reason. We don't need a whole world full of hairy hunters, nor do we need a whole world full of administrators. Could you imagine everyone an administrator? Oh, goodness. Everyone with a clipboard, no one doing the work. Right? God has made all these people by design with different gifts and talents. And even the things that you see as shortcomings that hold you back, God has done that for a reason too. I wish I was taller. I was stronger. I wish I was smarter. I wish I was better at me. You know, we're always wishing we're something we weren't created to be instead of thanking God for who He created us to be. Yet when it comes to our sin, then we turn around and blame God for the way that we are. Because 
He died for us on the cross in spite of our good works. We can be assured that God loves us in spite of our nature and nurture. And knowing that he loved us and died for us gives us the freedom and the power then to then change what he expects us to change. And it gives us the grace to extend to others and say, look, I understand you are the way you are, and I'm not going to change you. But in these areas where God expects us to change, let's together, by God's grace, make those changes. Folks, this is so important in all of your relationships. Could you imagine how much better our marriages would be if spouses weren't saying, well, why can't he be more like me, or why can't she be more like me? We like to watch like uh, the house hunter show and you got the husband and wife going to find their dream home, but they argue. I want carpet. I want hardwood. I want high ceilings. I want, you know, why? Because it makes you feel comfortable. I don't know why. We have these preferences. They just make us who they are. It's not a deficiency. It's not a defect. My older daughter likes a clean room. My younger daughter likes a... A nest, we call it. One isn't better than the other. They're just different, and they're learning to accept one another's differences. So rather than getting them separate rooms, you guys are going to have to figure this out. Can you love your sister more than you love the way you like your preferences? I won't read through all the text from Romans 9, but at the end of Romans 9, Paul says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That is to say, that is a quote from the Old Testament prophet. That is not, God hates Esau like the way we hate people. It's only saying that God, in his providence and in his sovereignty, decided that the younger brother would be the child of promise. Why? Because God gets to choose. There could only be one child of promise God chose. Paul says, What then shall we say? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. God is just. And he ends up saying, Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? In other words, instead of like the world saying, It's not fair. I saw a picture on the internet the other day and had somebody was frustrated with a quote that says, it sure must be tiring, sure must get tiring being upset at everybody all the time. Isn't this the world we live in? You hurt my feelings, you stepped on my toes, you offended me. How did we get to this place? This is a world that doesn't have a big view of God and His sovereignty who can say, look, this is just the way it is. This is how God has ordained things. And where things are wrong and they're objectively wrong and God says they're wrong, He expects us to change. He expects us to go out to the world and feed the poor like we saw with the OCC Operation Christmas Child video. Go go right the wrongs in the world instead of sitting at home having a pity party for yourself. So here's your application. Accept your nature and your nurture, trusting that God is sovereign. He, he made you this way, and he puts you in these circumstances for a reason. Change only what God expects you to change is revealed in his word. 
because God is sovereign over nature and nurture, be patient with others. It's hard to overcome your nature and nurture, right? You can't just tell people, well, just stop it. We'll just cut it out. It's hard to overcome your nature and nurture, but the power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you to change. Because God has justified you by grace through faith in Christ, we can be diligent to trust God in our sanctification. Look, he worked out the justification, and I didn't play a part in it. So since he handled the hard part, the hardest part, I can trust him to change in my sanctification. Number four, find relief in the fact that God worked through some pretty dysfunctional heroes of the faith. These are the heroes of the faith? Yeah. Instead of mocking them, say, wow, that's me. And if God can work through them, then I humbly can accept that God can work through me as well. But I don't have to make the same mistakes they made. These are given as an example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that we take heed lest we fall, that no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. But with the temptation, God is faithful and provides a way of escape, the way of escape, so that you can endure the trial. Stop looking for excuses in your nature and nurture and get about the business of making change for the glory of God. And finally, praise Jesus that we finally, finally got a perfect representative of the human race, Jesus Christ. No dysfunction there. And that God credited His righteousness to us. Ultimately, Jesus tells us that Jacob's ladder is him. In John 1:47, he tells Nathanael this. Let's skip down to the end of that slide. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not on Jacob's ladder. That is Jesus. God is working out His sovereign will in our lives through the person of Jesus Christ. Stop living life as if God is distant and He's not working and you have to figure out your nature and nurture all on your own and we're all just lumped together in one big crazy mess. That is the way the world views life. We know better. God is at work. And he finished the hardest work of all already. So we are free now to work to glorify him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, God. Remind us that you are at work. Show us your mighty hand. Give us that vision, so to speak, like Jacob, that we can see you working. Your word tells us you are working, so that is enough for us. We can trust But Lord, we'd ask in your grace and your mercy to to give us a special view. Show us where you're working all things together for good. Show us in ways that only can be attributed to you. Your miraculous workings here amongst the affairs of men. And Lord, help us to overcome our fallen DNA. May we work with the gifts and talents you've given us in the situations and circumstances you've placed us, trusting and obeying. 
that you will ultimately work everything out for good, as your word tells us. And we know that God works everything together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.